We are living in a biodiversity crisis. 42,000 animal species are currently threatened with extinction, which is more than a quarter of all species that have been assessed for the International Union of Concerned Scientists Red List. But are zoos a solution? Hello and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, we talked to Dr. Albrecht Schultz-Hosted, a professor in the School of Natural Sciences at Laurentian University. Albrecht is an evolutionary ecologist who has worked with the Toronto Zoo, among others. So we asked him all about his work with zoos and how accredited zoos work to promote conservation. I thought this was such an interesting conversation. Zoos, of course, have a super sketchy colonial history, but today their position in conservation and in society more broadly is actually a lot more complicated. Accredited zoos, anyway, conduct important research and they actually reintroduce some species into the wild. So for me, anyway, it's a sort of this big open question of whether they're, they're a good thing or not. I wish the world didn't need conservation in the way that it does because it's really hard to do. Albrecht is so knowledgeable and he gave us, I think, like a pretty unfiltered perspective that was really driven by his experience in working with zoos and had a lot of nuance to it. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review and your preferred listening platform. All right, giver. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Who are you? How did you get into the work that you do? What, 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 what's, what's up? <laughs> Hello, stranger. <laughs> well, I'm an evolutionary ecologist, I guess I call myself. My original interest, certainly when I started my PhD and so on, was around sort of evolution of, of sexual size dimorphism. I did a lot of work in sperm competition. So a lot of like, you know, I'd say basic science, right? Like really research that was uh, driven by testing theory. But back in 2011, uh, I got a Canada research chair at, here at Laurentian. And um, that chair, I purposely, I mean, you might not remember, but at the time, Stephen Harper was the prime minister. And the um, funding for research at NSERC and so on was, was uh, at risk for sure. And so I had purposefully pivoted a bit to do more applied work. And so my Canada research chair was actually in applied evolutionary ecology. And I had already started working, I mean, I guess this is mostly about zoos, but like I had started working uh, with a colleague at the Toronto Zoo uh, prior to that. Gabby Mastermonico is the name of the, my collaborator there. She's now, I think, director of research or some, I don't remember, I can't recall her full title, but she's like, you know, just uh, one step below the, the CEO. Um, but she's in charge of research now at the, univer at, the, at the zoo. But to her and I had been doing collaborative work for quite some time, mostly around sperm and sperm competition and looking at the evolution of sperm size. And, you know, the zoo has this incredible cryobank of, of sperm samples, right, from animals that they use for their artificial insemination uh, work. Um, but then I started working a bit more in sort of the conservation angle of things. And as an evolutionary ecologist, like starting to ask questions about captive breeding programs in particular and, and wondering whether the animals that were going into a captive breeding program that is the animals that came from the wild and then they breed them for how many generations and then you release them into the wild. I mean, are they the same animal? Right. That's my that was sort of one of my fundamental questions was trying to get at that question of how much evolution actually happens in captivity and um, are captive breeding programs, you know, are they affected by that, you know, what they call inadvertent domestication? And 
Well, there's no answer yet. I mean, this is the, the part of the issue, like, you know, and quite frankly, there's a bit of frustration working with the zoos and my collaborator and I both share it. So I don't want it to sound like, you know, I'm at odds with with uh, with Gabby there at the Toronto Zoo. But like there is some frustration working with uh, with with the zoos and with um, sort of the teams of people that are in charge of individual endangered species. So each endangered species in Canada um, or even actually across the world has like a, a committee of people that are in charge of like the breeding that is happening at captive breeding programs that are usually scattered around the world or at different zoos. And um, they include, you know, government scientists, uh, veterinarians, and uh, occasionally academics, researchers. And so, you know, I've had some frustration working with these groups. So I'll just give you a quick anecdote. I should preface this by saying that most of the work that I do is in collaboration with my graduate students, right? So I don't, I'm not the one that does all the work like the graduate students do. And so, you know, I've had several graduate students work with uh, an endangered species here in, in Canada, and um, uh, it's getting access to data and samples has been very frustrating. You know, I've proposed uh, simple experiments in the past with the captive animals, and then I'm it's declined because they're worried that it's going to stress the animal out, even though, you know, in my mind anyway, the, the protocol is quite straightforward and, and really simple. Um, we've struggled with sometimes with with the way that data is managed by some of the groups, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm being somewhat critical here. I mean, obviously they do important work and it's, you know, many of them are volunteers and it's, you know, it's not easy. But just from a, an academic scientist trying to collect data, you know, to publish, to get make an impact, it, uh, it can be can be pretty frustrating. Well, that, that's actually a great lead in for I have so many more questions about zoos. <laughs> but, but before we uh, go on to that, I actually wanted to ask about the Center for Evolutionary Ecology and Ethical Conservation, which I think is, is that the center that you're doing most of this research work through? Yeah, so that it's a bit of a sad story, actually, because um, I mean, you may not be aware, but Laurentian University went through the only um, insolvency that's ever been declared by a public university. I mean, this, that's a completely different podcast sort of episode that you may want to talk about sometime. But they fired like 100 plus faculty here. They closed like 69 programs. And it was an absolutely devastating and traumatic thing that happened to us. And, and my, my, the research center, which I'll, I'll tell you, what, you know, how it started in a second, but like it, it, it's no longer because half of the people who are in it were fired um, for no reason. I mean, just because of this insolvency. So... But uh, the Center for Evolutionary Ecology and Ethical Conservation started when um, myself and my colleague, Jillian Crozier, who was, I mean, she's no longer here at Laurentian. She was fired because she was in the philosophy department, but she's a bioethicist. And we had done like, a, you know, we had started working together on, we did some papers on, um, on ethics of uh, ecological research. We'd done some work on ethics of wildlife disease management. So we were both Canada research chairs. So we collectively, along with some other colleagues, um, David Lesbarer, who also lost his job, Brett Buchanan, who was an environmental philosopher, uh, also lost his job, and um, Jackie Litzkis, myself, and uh, Chantal Berrio, who works in science communication. So yeah, so we had this great center. Um, the first thing we did was we hosted a big symposium called Thinking Extinction that was um, proposed by or led by Brett Buchanan. It was really cool because we brought together all these conservation scientists, philosophers, ethicists, and we had like three days of talks. 
Stuart Pym was here. I don't know if you've, you know, he's been in the middle of a bit of controversy right now, but uh, he's like a leading conservation biologist from the U.S. We had uh, Margaret Atwood here. We had, uh, you know, a bunch of other really cool people. And uh, it got a lot of press and a lot of interest locally and, and nationally. And that was our first event. And then we collectively, you know, we there's a science center here called Science North, which you may have heard about, which is quite really, really good. Uh, they do great work. And we've collaborated with them for a bunch of events. Uh, and we got some grant stuff, including the grant that you may, you know, you mentioned in the questions, but it's Renew Zoo. So we had this, this big grant that was funded by NSERC that was meant to train students uh, to work with zoos. So the research center itself, ultimately, like, it's just not viable when three out of six people get fired. And uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm reasonably bitter about the whole circumstance. So, um, so yeah, as, as it stands, you know, unfortunately, the, the research center is not really functioning because it, it doesn't have the people, which is really disappointing. That is so frustrating. And at a time when, like, we need that research more than we ever have before. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, again, like the, the whole thing that happened here at Laurentian, it's worth reading about. Uh, it's a horrible story among Canadian universities. And um, I mean, it, it is it, lots of stuff got cut that were super important. So that was, you know, they, they cut every, they cut the uh, environmental studies and environmental science program here. There's no ecology or, or restoration ecology or restoration biology program, which they used to have. You know, that's just the context in which I personally find myself, right? So in terms of the research center and, and all that. I mean, I think it is good context to share as, as well, because as we see like some governments considering like further cuts to university funding, it, it's a good reminder that this has real impacts on research that, that are, is really valuable. So a sad story, but important to share the context. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, I mean... Again, I could go on about this. If you read my Twitter account, you'll see that I do. <laughs> but like the corporatization of universities is a is a real problem, and uh, the idea that uh, you know university administrators and and boards of governors are making decisions about what they think is valuable is is really problematic. Yeah, it's just like a, a great example of just our priorities being all wrong. You know, like yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. The priorities of the people who did it were clear. <laughs> it's just the priorities are not at, are at odds with perhaps the rest of us. But yeah, so I mean, just to get to move, move on a bit, maybe if you want to talk about the Renew Zoo program, which was this collaborative program, I worked with uh, colleagues from I think it's five or six other universities, and we worked with zoos like across Canada and even around the world in Europe mostly, and some in the states. Uh, so we had this program that was funded by by NSERC. So NSERC is the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council. It's the main funding body for people like me who do the, the kind of work that I do. And uh, they had a program called the CREATE Grant Program. So the CREATE is an acronym that I cannot remember what it means. But basically, it's a training grant. So it's meant to fund the training of graduate students and to give money to help uh, give them sort of uh, added value. So we would we had a co, you know, several cohorts of graduate students. I think at the end we had like over, did we have 26 graduate students in the end that we that we trained, masters and PhD students, and they were all supervised by academics, but they also did projects in collaboration with uh, with zoos. Uh, so you know, most of my people worked with the Toronto Zoo, but I had a I had a student work with the Assiniboine Park Zoo, 
a lot of people worked with the Calgary Zoo. Um, there were some people that worked with the Vancouver Aquarium, although they had changes in their ownership during and after COVID that made things a bit more difficult, I think, a little bit. But um, so anyway, um, so yeah, so we had graduate students that were like supervised by academics. They were sort of co-supervised or working also with zoo professionals. Uh, and they would do a project. Their projects, their thesis projects were around issues that were relevant to conservation and zoos. And um, we would do things like we had like so CASA, which is Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums, which is like sort of the Canadian sort of umbrella organization for zoos. So they have an annual meeting. And before COVID, we would be our meeting. We would have a, a symposium at the same time, the same place. And it was like we would uh, have speakers come for the for the students and we would the students would present their some students would present their work to all of the CASA members as a way to sort of try to get them, you know, sort of uh, introduced to the, the, the industry, so to speak. Uh, we did an online course uh, for the students and we did a bunch of professional development stuff, stuff that like all these things were things that most like a normal graduate program wouldn't have. But we had the funding to try to give them this extra leg up in terms of uh, in terms of their work. So that was a six year grant that ended like last year. It's difficult, uh, you know, COVID kind of really I mean, it's really screwed things over for everybody, like in every aspect of life. But this program was affected a lot because the zoos were financially affected uh, badly by by COVID. They were closed uh, often or at least, you know, open in a minimal way. And uh, the universities, of course, were grappling with their own challenges. And so it was a bit of a disappointment to, to have it end. But nonetheless, like the students are all, you know, they've all published a lot of work and they're all ending up, not all of them are working with zoos, but um, most of them are working in conservation in some fashion. That's a really cool program. Is there any plan to keep it going after this? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's difficult to answer because part of the problem is that our partner, the CASA, is struggling right now. Uh, I don't know all the details, but... Uh, They've canceled their annual meeting. They, uh, you know, I think some of the zoos have pulled out. So part of the issue with zoos is accreditation, which you may want to talk about later, I guess. But so zoos, uh, these associations provide accreditation for, for zoos. So what that means is that they go in, they inspect the zoos, ensure that, you know, animal welfare is maintained at a very high level. Um, they have a bunch of like administrative sort of you know rules that they have the way zoos are supposed to handle themselves, and then they also uh, are supposed to ensure that the zoos are engaged in some form of research. I'm not really in a position to talk too much about what's going on in Casa, of course, but um, certainly like the Calgary Zoo is pulled out of Casa, and I think the Toronto Zoo has or will. Um, and that's because, in part, that they are accredited by the American Zoo Association. So the, the AZA is a much larger, more robust organization, and they accredit uh, zoos, not just in the United States, but also in, um, in Canada. So the larger zoos are accredited by the AZA. So, in fact, if you look on social media, the Toronto Zoo just announced that they, they received AZA uh, accreditation again. So they were successful. So... There's a lot of internal sort of politics, I guess you might say, in that kind of space for the for the zoos in Canada. And it's not entirely clear how it's going to uh, end up in the end. But it's I think what is clear is that the bigger zoos are going to end up uh, being affiliated with the AZA, which leaves CASA in a bit of a bind because the bigger zoos were the ones that paid the bills for them. Right. So 
there is so much going on at a bureaucratic level with zoos that I hadn't even known existed. So thank you for talking about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I think um, the general public doesn't have a really broad understanding of the complex uh, sort of administrative roles that, um, that occur at, at zoos and especially accredited zoos. Like the accredited zoos, many of them are big organizations that, you know, they do a lot of interesting work and, and uh, there's a lot going on there. Okay. Well, I mean, you have a fairly intimate knowledge of like the workings of zoos. And one of my main questions was essentially like a lot of the general public and some like bioethicists will go on about how unethical like zoos and aquariums can be. So I was just wondering like, where, where do you land on that? They get a pretty bad rap some t- in some spaces. I have discussions about this obviously a lot <laughs> with people um, and Part of the problem is the word zoo, because the word zoo means many things to different people, right? So it can mean something like, you know, the San Diego Zoo or the Toronto Zoo, right? Or the Calgary Zoo, which have large, I'll call them collections of animals. They have really high standards in terms of veterinary care. They're involved in conservation programs. And, and you know, we can have discussions about how effective those conservation programs are. But they certainly try and they do a lot of work in terms of, uh, you know, communication with the public, education and all that. But then a zoo is also like the roadside zoo, right? Where you've got a guy with a tiger in a small cage, like, you know, like uh, Tiger King in this kind of business. And uh, and that's obviously unethical. And I don't think any right minded person would think that that is appropriate, of course. So, you know, it's a it, it's a tough call. I mean, I think I see value in zoos, you know, especially like I said, accredited zoos that are where animal welfare is, is the you know, most important thing and it also engage in research and so on. I think there's a place for that. You know, there's a lot of baggage in terms of zoos, like historically as well. The way animals were treated, like human zoos, there's, you know, there's just a, there's a lot <laughs> to handle. And I don't think zoos as organizations really do a great job of, of, of dealing with that past. I mean, we're seeing lots of really interesting ways of thinking about, you know, trying to, grapple with the past, whether it's through, you know, indigenous sort of residential schools, you know, like all of that, like society is really taking a a different lens to how, (laughs) how we did things. I mean, I'm a child of the nineties. I mean, just thinking about the movies I used to find that were funny. And then you look at them now and you're like, how could anybody have thought this was appropriate? Right. So, and it's the same thing with, in some ways with zoos, right? Like looking back, zoos have done a lot of horrible things. And I think a lot of that also is, is baggage that, that zoos need to deal with. But yeah, you know, I've seen firsthand, you know, how how much, you know, the people who work at zoos, how committed they are to the animals and to the the programs that they run. I think there's always room for improvement, but I, I don't doubt that, you know, for the most part, everybody working at a, an accredited zoo is doing what they think is best for the animals. You know, should an elephant be in, uh, you know, in Calgary at the zoo there? Or should an elephant be at the Toronto Zoo? You know, those are tough questions. I don't have the answer. That's why they're, they're ethics questions, right? There's no right answer. Do they have a role to play in terms of education of, you know, people? I Probably. Are they comfortable living? You know, I often think about polar bears that live in like, you know, temperate and tropical like sort of zoos and think, what the hell? And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of complicated questions and probably the, the, the types of animals that different zoos carry could probably be adjusted based on, on where they are. I was in Montpellier. I, I, I was on sabbatical and I, I spent some time in a, a city in France called Montpellier, which is you know where this research center I was doing work with. But they have a zoo there. 
And, um, you know, the city council had basically given them uh, a rule change that they had to, like, get rid of all of their exotic animals. They could only keep animals that were, like, I won't say native, but certainly, like, you know, within some latitude. And so that was an interesting perspective to, to bring. So anyway, yeah, not, I don't know if I've answered your question, but they're tough questions to ask. It's one of those things where I think an individual kind of has to decide if it's something for them. Uh, and I agree with you that um, from my understanding, the people who work, especially at the accredited institutions, like they really care about the animals and like, yeah, should we have a discussion about, you know, large charismatic animals being, you know, kept? But I mean, you've done a, a ton of research about animals that have been born into captivity over generations. And at what point is it just impossible to reintroduce them into the wild anyways, right? Yeah, and this is interesting. This is like, you know, this is a bit of a, it's a tough spot for zoos because, I mean, often this is the justification for keeping these animals in captivity is that they're going to release them at some point, right? And and the question is, you know, are these animals that they've got in captivity for generations, are they going to survive, right? Like one of the major criticisms of, of these captive breeding programs is the high degree of mortality when they release the animals, like a large proportion of them will die. And, you know, I mean, that, that's an ethical question, right? Like, is that is that right? Is that the right thing to do? If you think about the greater good of like trying to reintroduce a species into the wild, like maybe it is, but um, at the individual welfare level, maybe it's not. I don't know. So these are, you know, the values are, they, they counter each other, right? Like, you know, on the one hand, from a population level, you want to introduce a population of animals into a, a habitat that's appropriate. It will take some animals dying, <laughs> ultimately, like say 20%, 50% of the animals will survive, which means, you know, 80%, 50% are going to die. So from a welfare perspective, you know, maybe that's not great, but from a population level, you know, if it establishes a, a, a real population, then that's good. So those those values are, are, are counter each other. So, you know, which is more important? You know, it depends. If your interest is in biodiversity, then maybe the population level sort of arguments, are, uh, they trump sort of individual welfare in that case anyway. Yeah. And that kind of actually leads me into one of my next questions, which is we're facing quite a few extinctions right now, or at least a lot of endangered species. And as climate change continues to worsen, I think we're going to see that becoming more difficult over time. And I'm just wondering, like... <laughs> What's the role of conservation in a world that's changing so rapidly that ecosystems are collapsing and we have nowhere to put these animals anymore? Well, I mean, conservation clearly has a role in the sense that, like, you know, people who are fighting climate change in some fashion are, are conservationists, I mean, at least in name. You know, part of the thing is, like, you know, as the earth warms, I guess, then you end up seeing species move northward, right, or south southwards, I guess, if they're below the equator. I mean, you see that like ticks, right? I mean, the classic, it's a good example are ticks that are moving northward and bringing along with them the various bacteria that they harbor and which infect people and cause things like Lyme disease. You know, you talk about ecosystems collapsing, I guess. If, the, if an ecosystem is collapsed, then there's no hope, I suppose. Um, and all you can do is mitigate the damage. Um, but there's a lot of interesting questions about how to deal with climate change and how to deal with endangered species that are like, you know, there's, there's story, you know, not stories, but there's species that are like, they're found in areas 
that are cooler that are like at high altitudes, right? And as things get warm, they're like slowly working their way up. They're working their way up higher up the mountain, right up to the point where, you know, there's nowhere higher to go. <laughs> and so they end up getting stuck on these, on these caps, right on the mountain caps. So there's, you know, there's different species that have done that. And that's difficult, of course, because then it, these populations become isolated and then they become more likely to go extinct. And so, yeah, no, I don't think there's any easy answers. You know, there's, there's stories about, not stories, but there's suggestions that we should, we should move animals, right? Let's say animals, like, you know, we should move them northward, like actually reintroduce populations of animals that are going, that are doing poorly in southern areas, uh, at least in the northern hemisphere, and then transport them northward where the temperatures might be better for them. But I'm not saying that this is something that I you know, think is a good idea, but there are certainly people that are having discussions about this if they haven't already done it. I'm wondering if like, when it comes to, to conservation in cases where like, maybe the habitat is no longer viable, like, what are, what's like the range of strategies that are available? I know you've already discussed sort of reintroduction and like moving populations, but are there any other approaches? Uh, off the top of my head, no. I mean, obviously keeping them in captivity uh, until, you know, some habitat becomes appropriate. I think that's the main argument that, that many zoos take, right? Like this the idea that the zoo is an ark, right? I mean, I think that's a metaphor that's been used for a very long time with zoos, that they, they function as an ark. And so you place the animals in the ark and, and wait till the flood goes down and then you can reintroduce the animals. I mean, I if you're talking about a scenario in which, you know, an ecosystem has collapsed, the animals and plants and, and living things can no longer survive there, you know, like if you're going to remove them, that's one thing northward. But uh, other than that, I mean, captivity, I can only imagine is the only other option. I actually, like right before I sent you these questions, I had just finished reading Under a White Sky. It's kind of an exploration of people trying to control environments that are collapsing or changing rapidly due to human intervention already. And there's some really fascinating examples of like, there's a really rare fish in the Arizona desert that lives in like one cave. And if that fish population dies, then they, it's like a total extinction of that species of fish. They've built like, like a whole facility that has like a mimics the the cave so that if <laughs> so so that if if the 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 cave because there's, there's like issues with where it's like being fed by like hot springs way way down is, like it's is it the pupfish yes 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 in like a cave in the desert yeah yeah they're really isolated so part of the problem is when you have small populations that are isolated like what sounds like in this example like the they can go extinct very easily yeah, yeah. And so like I think a lot of the discussion in that in that book that I read was essentially about how difficult it is to protect species when their ecosystem might no longer be viable for them. The things that we have to build are just so expensive and so large. And then the question becomes like, is it worth it for the species that is like 200 fish? And I think we're gonna be facing a lot more questions like that as as climate change makes things harder for our global neighbors. That's why you need bioethicists to navigate those kinds of questions, because you're absolutely right. Like the investment required to maintain a population of animals that have highly specialized needs. And in the wild, there's only a, you know, a few hundred. Does, does the expenditure, is it worth it? 
And of course, you know, there will people that will say, yes, of course it is, because this is, you know, we have to maintain biodiversity. But then there are others that will say, you can use that money to save, you know, other species, right? More species. I don't know. But there's a there's an interesting discussion there for sure. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just wondering, like, do people take a course in bioethics or like how? (laughs) Yeah, That's interesting because the Renew Zoo program that we had, we actually did this discussion, these discussions. We had these discussions. So we had we would have a workshop at our annual meeting where we would get the graduate students in a room with a couple of bioethicists and we would talk about these kinds of things. But yeah, but they're important, right? Like, actually, this is really interesting and not to get off on a tangent, but like. This is an important aspect of why the humanities are so important for science students, right? So students in conservation should have courses in environmental philosophy and bioethics because it lets them grapple with the kinds of questions that you've just described, right? Like it's not an easy answer. And if you have someone who is a conservation biologist at a zoo having to make this decision about whether to spend money to save, you know, this obscure species of fish that lives in a very, you know, highly specialized environment or spend the money on some other project that would save more animals. I, I don't know. I'm just paraphrasing. But like, how do you grapple with that? Like, how do you uh, make a decision about that? I mean, that requires, you know, some insight into the ethics of it all. And so, you know, just because you're a science student doesn't mean that you shouldn't be taking these, you know, the kinds of courses that would allow you to, to sort of grapple with those kinds of important questions. Yeah, uh, is, I, I think a lot of like regular people kind of struggle with these as well. I mean, and the zoos question is kind of like the main one that I was thinking of when I ask, like, what do we do? <laughs> like, are, are zoos evil? Like, I don't know, but it, like they do so much important research and they keep like populations of animals safe and so many of the animals in them are rescued. But then I think of like, I mean, I have a friend who used to work for the Vancouver Aquarium before they were um, purchased by a private entity. Um, but she was doing an overnight uh, with some kids at the at the aquarium. It was like a sleepover situation, and one of the one of the otters had gotten like a rock and was like chipping away at his tank until the tank exploded and water came out everywhere, and it was like Seriously? four o'clock. Yeah, and like water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like. They had to like evacuate because there's alarms going off. There's like all these like fifth graders. <laughs> and it was just this one, this one sort of mischievous otter. And it's just when you hear stories like that, you're like, these are animals that are like very intelligent, that obviously like are really good at, you know, manipulating their environments. And it's just such a shame to think about them in captivity. So yeah, I guess that's just the main struggle, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that if you talk to people who work at zoos, you know, obviously, I think no one wants to see animals like that in captivity. Ideal In an ideal world, you wouldn't need zoos, I guess, other than the educational value of zoos is important and something to consider, right? Like, there is something magical about going in and seeing a sea otter swimming around, right? Like, there is something about that that's pretty amazing to see. And, you know, I hear people, I've had discussions with people, oh, you can get the same thing from, like, nature shows which are now you know you can see them on netflix and all this stuff but i I don't i don't buy that i think that there's something that happens when you see an animal like in real life Uh, now having said that of course i think zoos have a responsibility to to make captive conditions to be as as benign as possible right as positive i guess as possible for their their animals but um the thing to think about is like where what's the evidence right like it would be interesting to actually do a study and see you know what is 
what are the effects of seeing like animals on on a video versus an actual animal in front of you and the, how does that affect what people feel about biodiversity and, and so on and i have a colleague here chantal barrio who's in science communication and she did her phd thesis on that kind of stuff right trying to look to see how effective zoos are at getting their message across during in their communication strategy and it's not always great right like zoos need to do a bit of introspection i think and think a little bit about the kinds of ways they get messages across and actually engage with communication professionals to to just because you put out a you know some kind of a billboard that has information on it doesn't mean that the public are reading it and 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 absorbing it right so um, i think there's a lot of work that can be done in that area too i'm wondering um like you had mentioned that zoos sort of have an obligation to make conditions comfortable good for the animals that they're housing do you have any sort of like examples of maybe like for specific animals or something like that like what does good what does it look like yeah that's an excellent question because i i mean most animals in zoos like many of them are obese right like i mean they live these comfortable lives they don't have to deal with like predators they don't have to deal with like the kinds of stressors that their bodies are adapted for actually right and so that's a you know i <laughs> I just had a student like my one of my students finished and did some work on the Vancouver Island marmot. So this is like a species on Vancouver Island. I mean, if you're out in Vancouver, you may have heard of it, but it's like this this like it's like a groundhog that lives in these alpine meadows in, on Vancouver Island. And there's like a very extensive captive breeding program that's run through the Toronto Zoo and the Calgary Zoo, and they've got a facility on Vancouver Island that uh, where they have these animals as well, and they release them into these alpine meadows and. You know, it's been going on for 20 plus years now, I think. But anyway, so what we found, we were looking, we, we had a measure of stress, basically. And we found that animals in captivity, if I remember correctly, like had really low stress levels and much lower than than animals in the wild. And so, you know, is that good? I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's it's good in some ways, right? But then you're breeding these kind of lazy marmots that that don't, you know, and when you release them, like, what does this mean to the animals that you release, right? Like, their HPA axis, the, 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 the endocrine system that's related to stress and, and dealing with stress is not exercised, right? Like, it's never used because they never, like, get stressed out. And so, you know, we've actually talked about the idea of, like, scaring them once in a while. Like, wouldn't it be a good idea to, like, set it up so you put in, like, a fake predator and, like... And, you know, and I don't think I'm the first to have thought of this, right? So let's not, let's be clear. But I think that there's got to be a way to make their their existence more similar to what they would have in the wild. Um, but having said that, I mean, also there are people that think we should, you know, like you said, we should give them a good life, like I said, right? Like give them a good life, a benign existence in captivity. And if we were starting to throw like, you know, mock predators at, at prey species, you know, there's no doubt that animal welfare activists would not be happy with that. Again, complicated answer to your question, but it's a really good question. And I would love to do a study to see the relative, you know, success of marmots that get released into the wild after they've experienced, you know, consistent um, sort of visits by potential predators versus those that live a more benign existence that don't have their cortisol levels jump up or whatever. Yeah, it does feel almost cruel to release animals into the wild if they're used to living like a comfortable life with like, 
you know, meals on a regular basis and they've got all their friends with them if they're not one of those solo creatures. Yeah, there's a, and even with the marmots, actually, they did a study that looked at what they call a soft release or stepping stone release, where they actually do it gradually rather than just releasing them into the wild. And it actually helps them in terms of survival, as far as I understand. So there, I mean, people are doing that kind of thing, trying to figure out ways to do it. But I just think it'd be interesting to start like from, like from the get go, right? Like, so from the time they are born until they're released, having, giving them regular stressors. Right. So whatever they're experiencing in the wild, give them that once in a while. So fly something like an eagle, like a, a stuffed eagle across the across the, the pen that they're in. Right. Every once in a while to get, make them scatter and run away or, or other things like that. That would be I, I would be fascinated to do a study on that for sure. I guess another question to think about as well is like as climate change increases, like the probability of like flooding and storms and fires like what is the role of zoos in like the rescue of like local populations or like, wasn't there a zoo in like, it was COVID or something where like a lion got out and they were like walking around the city and like, like, like what happens when infrastructure fails? (laughs) The Calgary zoo had a catastrophic flood, like before COVID, right. That totally devastated the zoo. And um, they had a lot of problems. I mean, Pablo Escobar, (laughs) Like, I don't know if you know the story there, but like he had a menagerie down in Colombia and they have his his hippos got away and uh, they have like a, a, a population of hippos in, in Colombia that are living in the rivers there. And uh, like they're they're successfully reproducing and their population is growing. And um, it's a big problem, like a big problem. I mean, obviously big because they're hippos, but like <laughs> ecologically, it's a big problem. You know, zoos are obviously, I mean, I'll say accredited zoos are are centers of uh, veterinary excellence, right? Like that is that their, their main, you cannot have a zoo that is accepted by the public unless the animals are well cared for, right? Like that's the, that's the bottom line for, for an accredited zoo is that animal welfare has to be at the forefront. You cannot have a zoo where the animals are treated poorly or where their veterinary care is substandard. The veterinarians that work at zoos, you know, I have <laughs> had challenges with veterinarians and I won't go on to it about that too much, but they definitely know their stuff in terms of animal welfare and animal care. So what their role is in terms of like floods and all that, like, so I would assume that like if there are animals that are injured, that people who work at zoos can help for sure. Uh, do, do zoos take in animals that are injured and and all that. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. There's a finite amount of space, certainly at zoos. And so their capacity to help is probably, you know, limited by, by space in terms of infrastructure. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that zoos worry about that. I mean, there's no doubt that zoos, zoo administrators are thinking about the effects of fire and flood and, and, you know, the increased incidence of those things on their operations. I mean, if they're not, they're not very smart, right? Like you need to really imagine that it's important. I mean, many zoos, especially in North America, are have a lot of natural spaces in them, right? They're they're really like in Europe, a lot of you know they have zoos there that are like uh, sort of the relics of these menageries, right? So I went to the zoo in uh, Amsterdam, and it's it's uh, it's actually like in the middle of the city, right? It's actually not very large, and it's it's amazing. And they've got all kinds of interesting animals there, but uh, it's in the middle of the city. So, 
that's quite different from how things are in many North American cities where, where the zoos were, were built, you know, after the idea of a menagerie was sort of discarded. I was in Paris and I went to the Jardin des Plantes and they've got like the original menagerie, right? Like the, I think it's the second oldest zoo in Europe. Much of it is closed because you couldn't keep animals like in, in those conditions anymore. But that was also fascinating from a historical perspective, seeing like how they had a cat house and they had like all of these different spaces where, you know, behind glass, you know, like all the different cats, all everything would have been like um, arranged taxonomically. Right. So zoos used to have this this I mean, they do now, of course, but like they were there to, to educate the general public at some point. Right. So once menageries became. Uh, open to the public, then they were used to educate them and they would have everything organized in this kind of taxonomic way to try to teach people about evolution and teach them about how things were related to each other. And so you go to the reptile house and they would have the same kind of thing set up, you know, and it was really interesting. I'm curious, um, something you'd said previously um, prompted the question, like how do zoos get the animals that they get? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh my God. So it's a good question, right? So... <laughs> They, so I teach, um, when I taught that uh, part of that uh, online course, one of the things I did was I would give a little history of zoos sort of. And so, you know, back in like, I guess even the 20s, 30s or earlier, they would capture them in the wild, right? So, I mean, there's horrible stories of like, you know, killing the mother, like usually it's obviously mammals. They would kill the mother and then they would take the, the young. Right. And this is and then, you know, some large proportion of the animals would die en route but from from Africa, let's say, or South America to to North American zoos. There was a what's it called? It was like uh, bring them back alive. So you guys, you're too young to remember this, but there was a TV show called Bring Them Back Alive that was based on like the life of this famous American whose name escapes me, but who who's who was became like a celebrity by capturing animals in, in Africa and bringing them back. And of course, there's this whole colonial sort of context, right? Because here's the big white hunter going to Africa and forcing all of the, the people from Africa to be his, you know, his servants and to do the work while he sits there with his pith helmet and directs everything, right? And it's, uh, it's actually remarkable. Like in the video footage, like the guy would have movies made about this whole thing. So what's that all to say that you know, a lot of zoos got animals from the wild, uh, but not anymore. So most of the animals now are, are that are in zoos are, are bred in zoos, which speaks to this thing about like, you know, this sort of inadvertent domestication. So if you're keeping animals with the idea that eventually you might release them or they're part of a captive breeding program for conservation purposes, but you've had them in captivity for generations, then that begs the question, are the animals that you've got that are in captivity, are they sort of and I'll say the word like phenotypically, are they in terms of their behavior, in terms of the way they, you know, their physical sort of dimensions, their physical appearance, you know, their physiology, are they the same as the animal that broke, that came in, right? So you can imagine a scenario in which, you know, the captive breeding program requires that animals breed in captivity, obviously, and those animals, you know, don't always breed easily when they're in captivity because they're stressed out, because the environment's wrong, whatever the case may be. And so some subset of those animals, those individuals are going to breed, right? It might be a small subset of them, but it's going to be some proportion of them. And they may have characteristics like behavioral characteristics that are 
you know, they're, they're, they're beneficial in captivity because, you know, they are docile, let's say, right? They don't, their stress levels are not as high, let's say, and they breed and they're more successful. And that means over time, as those animals breed, their offspring are probably also going to be less stressed out. And I'll use that in quotes, more docile. And so over time, you have a population of animals that's made up of individuals that are successfully breeding in captivity because they're more docile, let's say, but that's not reflecting the natural behavior of these animals that in, kept in the wild, those docile animals would not be successful, right? Or as successful. So anyways, you get this kind of these changes that are happening. And, and so that, anyway, that's one of my major interests about the whole thing with zoos, but yeah, so most zoos like are getting these animals from, uh, are now like they're captively bred. But the, the history of zoos and how they got many of these populations started initially is pretty, pretty horrible. Yeah. And I think most zoos are pretty like in touch with each other. So there's like trading programs that happen. So it's like, I'll give you a snake if you give me two That's right. otters or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. So like under, I mentioned this earlier, but there, there are like sort of committees of people that are in charge of the breeding programs of the endangered species and um, they coordinate the breeding of these animals to minimize inbreeding, right? So they don't want it. They want to maximize genetic diversity in their populations and they want to minimize inbreeding. So they, they try to breed individuals that are as unrelated as possible. And to do that, they often have to move animals from one zoo to another. And so that takes a lot of coordination and a lot of work, um, not just to figure out what, you know, to, to maintain a pedigree so that you can determine the relatedness amongst individuals. So you can figure out who to breed with whom, but also coordinating the movement of these animals, right, across different zoos is uh, is critically important as well. So is it safe to say then that for most accredited zoos uh, or for all accredited zoos, they're not getting their animals from the wild unless it's a rescue program now? I can't say that blanket statement. I can't be sure. Uh, I think for some endangered species, you know, they still bring in animals from the wild. But I, I can't say for sure. But I, I can say that for the most part, they don't. Yeah, like, I mean, no one's out there like catching gorillas to bring them back to a North American or European zoo or what have you, right? Like that just doesn't happen. I mean, if it does, it's not with an accredited zoo as far as I know. I think you were right earlier when we were talking about how uh, like people's impressions of zoos can be a little bit poor. And it, a lot of it is based on like the history of, of zoos. And, and as you say, like maybe, maybe zoos could do a better job of telling people that they're okay now. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think zoos, you know, and I've sort of brought this up, a little bit, but I think zoos need to need to face up to that history, right? And confront it. I'm an evolutionary biologist and I actually just taught a class like where we talked about eugenics and how a lot of the evolutionary biologists prior to World War II were actually raving uh, eugenicists. And there were like, you know, academic societies dedicated to eugenics and, and not just in Germany, right? Like across the UK, the United States, Canada, so anyway, all to say that evolutionary biology as a discipline is facing a lot of these these uh, uncomfortable, you know, historical truths about about our discipline, and I think zoos have to do something similar, right? Like the, the whole human zoo thing is just absolutely horrid, and um, what what was done, and um, and that's not really talked about, right? Like you don't, uh, you know, and zoos. I mean, not to say that they should. I mean, who knows how they should handle it? It's up to me to figure that out. But there's got to be a way for them to to figure that out. Okay, uh, so just to maybe end on 
like a little bit of a light note. Uh, I like to I like to lend our guests my magic wand, and I'm just like, here you go. Uh, you have you have a magic wand. You can fix everything that <laughs> that you would like with it. Uh, what would you like to see happen with like the zoo conservation sort of space? Uh, if you could if you could make something happen overnight, I think what I would like is to have the capacity to test ideas on what is the best way to use captive breeding programs. So I think a lot of what happens is based on what has been done in the past and it's worked to a degree, but there isn't, people are very cautious, right? You're dealing with an endangered species. If you screw up, you could cause it to go extinct, right? Especially if it's most of the animals are in captivity. So there's a lot of caution. And I, so I, you know, it's legitimate. I'm not saying that they're wrong to be so cautious, but I would, it would be interesting to see zoos embrace a bit more of a innovative approach to, to figuring this stuff out because or most captive breeding programs use a monogamous mating system, right? They take two animals that are like not related to each other and they put them together and expect them to have babies. Most species are not monogamous. And, you know, in many species, female mate choice is very important. <laughs> um, and this is, I mean, I know this because I'm trained as an evolutionary ecologist, behavioral ecologist, but people who are veterinarians that are trained as veterinarians don't know this, right? Or they may not know this or not know it well enough to be able to introduce what I would call, you know, sort of natural aspects of the mating system into their captive breeding programs. So, you know, I alluded to it earlier, like the idea of like, you know, I wanted to do an experiment, a study, like to, to look at a, a particular um, species to ask questions about whether, in this case, it was a female mate choice experiment. I wanted females to be able to choose their mate to try to improve the outcomes of these of these breeding programs. <clears throat> and I wanted to put the female into a radial maze, you know, and put the males on the different arms of the maze and ask, and this is done in all, in all kinds of different species, but you could then like, assess which male the females hang out with, hangs out with the most. And then you can breed that, you know, try to breed that female to that male. I would predict that that would be better than just randomly putting a male with the female. Anyways, I was, it was declined, right? My proposal was declined. And so my, my, you know, with a magic wand, I would like that experiment to be done, right? So that I could ask those questions and see whether, you know, introducing natural aspects of mating systems would improve the outcomes of these breeding uh, programs. I guess that's a bit specific, but that's that's sort of what I'm like. <laughs> That's fine. It's your magic wand. I've lent it to you. <laughs> I also think that's a really cool, like, I, I feel like that's a really necessary research that needs to be done, right? Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, there are people who have written about the role of female mate choice uh, and how it might be important. But it's really hard to break down the way things are done because, you know, the important thing for someone managing a captive breeding program is to maintain the genetic diversity of the population that they're managing. And so, you know, females may choose mates that might not be as unrelated as the manager may want. Right. And so you may get an erosion of genetic diversity, which for a small population is not good. So, you know, these are you know, people who manage these programs are sort of caught a little bit. One of the things that I wanted to do is that uh, was was to uh, get them to, to give me a subgroup of, of males that were acceptable from a genatic perspective or from a relatedness perspective, and then allow 
the female to choose from amongst those males, right? Um, anyways, there's ways to get around it, and I was trying to do that, but with my magic wand, all of that would disappear, and I could just do what I wanted to try to, you know, maximize the uh, positive outcomes of these programs. I think it's sort of a really good example of when you're doing zoo-related research, like all the things you have to think about <laughs> that uh, maybe wouldn't have to come into play in some other types of experiments. It's very interesting. Yeah, working with zoos is interesting because, you know, first of all, like I'm not a veterinarian and I don't work in the zoo world. So like, I mean, I mean, I do work sort of tangentially, with, you know, collaborate with zoos, but I'm not working in a zoo. And so that is interesting because it opens me up to criticism, right? Like people criticize me because they tell me I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not in the zoo. And so that closes doors sometimes. I mean, I'll give you an example. We published a paper uh, in my group, we did a group project in my lab and we examined, uh, well, it's not, it doesn't matter. It was a, looking at viruses in, in zoos and in and, and, and mammals and trying to see what was, what different viruses occurred and what were reported by zoos. But the reviewer from one of the papers wrote basically, I don't see anybody here who's a veterinarian from a zoo. You need to add authors who are veterinarians who know what they're talking about, even though I knew exactly what we were talking about. So you get confronted with this kind of, you know, thing. And I remember like another thing is like when we started that Renew Zoo program, we got pushback from, from zoo veterinarians. Anyway, it's, it's an interesting place to, to work. And, and I'm very fortunate because the people that I've collaborated with at the Toronto Zoo in particular, and actually at the Cinnabon Park Zoo, have been great. Like they're super good. And, and it's, uh, it's been really a good experience for the most part. Uh, is there anything that you wish we'd asked or any final thoughts you wanted to share with, with our listeners? Zoos are complicated, right? I think that's the underlying thing. Zoos are complicated and it's not, uh, it's not a simple you know, answer to, to people who want to get rid of them or whatever. Like it's not so simple. And um, there's a lot of space for zoos to grow and, and become more relevant in some ways, but uh, they're also really valuable. <laughs>